This Make It Stick presentation is based on a book. Uh, the book is pretty interesting. It's written by three people. Two of them were researchers um, in kind of neuroscience and learning. And then one was a writer who kind of took all of the data and everything from the research and then turned it into kind of stories or good examples that would make it more practical and easier to implement in the classroom. So um, I, I did this as a full day professional development, um, the high school I was working at, and um, we combined that with a learning management system. And I've tried to shrink this down into one hour. Um, and I don't know if this is a bait and switch or not, but it's also just an excuse for me to talk about poetry. So I'm actually gonna just kind of do a poetry lesson and then I'll go back and talk about the elements in the lesson that were sticky. So that's my plan. Um, so anyway, let's talk a little bit about maybe some preconceptions that we have about stickiness and learning. So fact or fiction, rereading is an effective learning strategy. Rereading. So if you're logged into joinpd.com and you put in this five letter code, you can do the interactive parts. So if you're just walking in, if you go to joinpd.com and put in this five letter code up here, Now I can show your responses. 26 of us think that rereading is an effective learning strategy, and seven of us think that it's not. Um, the neuroscience actually says that rereading is not an effective learning strategy. Now you're all going to change your answers. Go ahead. We can watch how this all changes in real time. There we go. All right. Thank you. Uh, so rereading is not an effective learning strategy. Um, it's just kind of going through the same motions. If it didn't work the first time, you should try something else. Uh, fact or fiction, making errors, whoops, typo, making errors when retrieving information is good for learning. Fact or fiction, making errors when retrieving information is good for learning. said true. Um, that is true. Um, obviously, there has to be some correction of those errors, but to actually get the error out and then have it corrected and being able to compare the wrong answer and the right answer, that's deeper engagement. So that's actually better for your brain. Teaching that is consistent with the student's preferred learning style, like if a student says, I'm a kinesthetic learner, that will improve learning. True or false? Learning styles. Visual, auditory, kinesthetic. Or something else, right? Visual. What's that? Tactile. Tactile, yeah. 
we're a little more split on this, but most of us are saying yes. If it fits your learning style, it's better. The research actually says no. Um, what's really important is that the, the, the teaching style matches the content. So there's some content that's better taught visually. So it doesn't matter the learner's preference, it matters what the content is. Learning is best when it feels easiest. True or false? False, good. Effortful learning is good learning. Um, you have to be trying hard for the learning to really stick. You should immediately move on from a subject once it is initially understood rather than continuing for mastery. So once you get a concept, should you stay there and solidify it or should you move on? It stated, you should immediately move on from a subject once it is, it is initially understood, rather than continuing for mastery. If you walked in late, we're using joinpd.com, and the five letters up here are the code to get into this session, but it's joinpd.com. So we said false. Uh, let's look at this again. You should immediately move on from a subject once it is initially understood rather than continuing for mastery. That is actually true. Um, I was trying to think of a good analogy for this. If you're painting, you want the first coat of paint to dry before you put on a second coat. Um, in your brain, once you make the neural pathway where you've got some content, you actually want to delay and allow a little bit of forgetting to happen and then to relearn it. And that actually solidifies the learning better than staying on a task that you have initially understood. So it is inefficient. It is inefficient to stay on a concept once you've grasped it, once your students have grasped it. Uh, fact or fiction, I grew up singing hymns. So answer for yourself. Did you grow up singing hymns? Okay, a lot of us. Um, so here's where I'm getting into the selfish part where I just want to talk about poetry and stuff like that. But uh, we're going to look at some hymns and some poetry from Emily Dickinson. So I think we all know this song. Uh, maybe I should call somebody who works with me up to sing it for everybody. I don't know. Grace, you want to come up and sing? Um, so, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. I think you probably can hear how that's poetic. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. 
Through many dangers, toils, and snares, we have already come. T'was grace that brought us safe thus far, and grace will lead us home. So this is um, a form of poetry called ballad meter, which has an eight-syllable line, usually four iams, which is an unstressed syllable and then a stressed syllable, followed by a six-line, a six-syllable line, followed by an eight-syllable line, followed by a six-syllable line, with an A, B, A, B rhyme scheme. So over here you see the U's are for unstressed and the apostrophes are for stressed syllables. And if you just count up here, we've got eight, and then we've got six, eight, six, and, ooh, you can't really see the bottom there, huh? How do I get that bottom away? Um, we go A for sound, B for me, a for found, and B for C. So this is ballad meter. Another form of ballad meter is called common meter, and that's just ballad meter that allows itself to break the rules a little bit. So sometimes there's an extra syllable. Uh, sometimes maybe the, the A's, uh, there's not actually two A's, so it might go A, B, C, B. So there might only be one rhyming set of lines, but uh, ballad meter is basically the rhythm and then common meter just kind of breaks some of the rhythm and rhyme scheme rules. So I have a question for you and maybe you can talk about this uh, with somebody near you, but you also have the option to, uh, to choose an answer. So is blessed be the tie that binds also in ballad meter? So go ahead and look at Amazing Grace. If you want to talk to your partner before you answer, you can. Uh, but you should be able to count things up and look at the sounds, try to figure out, is this ballad meter? If you just came in, if you go to joinpd.com and you put in the five-letter code, then you can do the interactive parts. And it will create a Google Doc for you. Oh, 
doesn't give you the options on the site? You had to hit answer question. Oh, click on something that says answer question. Got you. Yeah, okay, sorry. So, um, it, no, it is something else. It is not valid meter. IDK. <laughs> How many of you have gotten that on a question? <laughs> so, um, so this line right here, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. How many syllables? Eight. How many syllables here? Six. So this is not, um, that's too much of a jump because the, the I am is the two syllable unit and we've gone from four I am's to three I am's. So if there's one extra syllable, um, but it's still within that I am, then, then we're good. But that two syllables is too much of a stretch. So we're going to move on to this Emily Dickinson poem. Um, so over here, apparently with no surprise to any happy flower, the frost beheads it at its play in accidental power. Is that ballad meter?
Let's help each other out. How many syllables should be in this line? Six. Six. And if we're going to do anything else, what should we think about? Rhyming with unmoved. Uh, for whom it once behooved. <laughs> the blind assassin passes on the sun, proceeds unmoved to measure off another day. Yeah. It's murder thus behooved for whom it once behooved. These are great. IDK, thank you. Wouldn't it be overly rude? It carries on behooved. The nature is behooved. The flower is behooved. Let's have some fun. The night begins unproved. Approved. Unmoored and we're gonna have to come back to that one. Oh, all these people just got embarrassed and deleted them. The frost should be reproved. Interesting. The darkness thus approved. Interesting. The moon slowly grooved. Or my love it is approved. <laughs> I'm not going to read that one. Alright. Um, let's see if we have an unmoored and unconstrued. Okay. So let's see. Um, with an elbow partner, let's talk about this last line. So I'm going to read all the way through. Apparently with no surprise to any happy flower, the frost beheads it at its plate in accidental power. The blonde assassin passes on, the sun proceeds unmoved to measure off another day for an approving God. Talk about it with an el elbow partner. What feeling does the final line leave you with? Anybody want to share a feeling? You want to shout it out? Raise your hand or shout it out? It's unsettling. Unsettling. Thank you. sin we shall be free, perfect love and oneness reign through all eternity. 
So a similar rhyme scheme, A, B, A, B. But here we have six line syllable followed by six line syllable followed by an eight. Uh, sorry, I said that wrong. Six syllable line followed by a six syllable line followed by an eight syllable line followed by a six. So a similar, except that this first line of the stanza only has three IMs instead of four. Is this Dickinson poem, oh man, I got another typo, short meter. So over on the right, uh, you're right, the way is narrow and difficult the gate, and few there be correct again that enter in thereat. So you have on your phones, you can answer. God again, and good men live again, burning in hell their end. Does end rhyme with dividend? And therefore meet their end in hell to the end, and there they meet their end 
but sinners have no end, and ne'er are heard of again, a sad unhappy end, and hell is at the end, and therefore never end, and thus the bitter end. We're getting a theme here, but, but not the minuend. <laughs> Or the toils will never, never end, or the suffering has its end. But wait, they're in, they're in hell, right? And bear their awful end, for all there is an end, which is their very end. So says the Lord in heaven sent, to reap no gracious end, where justice will not bend. Ooh, because that's the trend. <laughs> Let that not be your end, when torture will not end, the path that is the end, the downward spiral trend. Mm -hmm. You guys are good poets. <laughs> I don't, <laughs> I decay, but something end. All right, give me money to, the, this is not the adequate, planning for adequate retirement, sorry. <laughs> um, so let's see what Emily Dickinson did. I guess. Oh. How many syllables was it supposed to be? Six. What's it supposed to rhyme with? IDK was closest. Yeah, so, yeah, it really was. Um, what feeling does the final line leave you with? Let's, let's type in feelings now, actually. <laughs> Incomplete work. She didn't want to go there. Disappointing. <laughs> lame. <laughs> Emily Dickinson is lame? It confirms that poetry is confusing. Yes, this really is the end of the poem. Irritated, puzzled, questioning. I think I'm better than her. <laughs> Let's get that off the screen for a second here. Um, questioning. Um, Emily Dickinson, in her creation of this questioning feeling, she's broken the meter and she's broken the rhyme scheme. And so that way the sound reinforces this feeling that she's trying to get, feeling of questioning. Uh, it makes me think more when she breaks the rules. Yeah, it, it should, it's going to sound stranger to your ears. Frustration. Nope, nothing was left out. If you've ever written poetry, you know nothing gets left out. <laughs> Curse you Dickinson, all right. Um, confusion about God, both of these are really about... <laughs> Wait, does that rhyme? She ran out of gas at the end. All right, Let's, um, let's go. So I want you to come up with an analogy to explain how Dickinson ends her, her poems. It should say poems. Um, so by ending with, for an approving God, when you're expecting something to rhyme with unmoved, 
and when you're expecting six syllables rhyming with dividend, and you get, I guess. Can you come up with an analogy? What is that like? I guess you're going to say like the kid who needs to stay in that recess. But what, what else could it be like? somebody would say something like this with words that I don't really know what they mean, but I know that, they're, that this was one of them that I was hoping to see. Dickinson's poetry is like a song that ends on a non-tonic note. I don't know what that means, but that's exactly what I was hoping somebody would say. Um, Dickinson's endings of her poems, like when you study tirelessly and complete all the homework, but then bomb the final. Okay. The end of Lost. <laughs> Like a train lurching to an abrupt halt. Like getting broccoli in my candy desk. Like digging into the dumb-dumb bag and grabbing the root beer flavored sucker. Like cutting me off at the knees but leaving you wanting more. She wants us to think about God and I'll come back. Uh, a song that's ending on an unresolved note. When your parents ask for a Christmas list and you open the gift and it's nothing on your list. Like biting into a cookie that you think is chocolate chip and realize it's amazing. Or the reverse. No? Just me? Like ice cream without the chocolate syrup. Okay. Well, I would almost try to go like unflavored ice cream. Is there such a thing? When you ask for a clue for Christmas and get who done it? A student confused about where a lesson is going in the classroom has no direction. So, um, she had two like the lions going out the football. Uh, Robert Frost, the superior, okay. Like when you score a goal, but it's in a goal. Okay. I tried to think of like a cooking analogy, like when you have something that's too, like, too acidic and you, you could put sugar in it to, to cut that a little bit, but you don't. Uh, something like that. What does she do? Why does she do this? So with the ends of her poems, what's she doing and why does she do this? expectations to frustrate us and make us think about messy realities of life or faith. Um, 
messy and hard to have faith when nature seems to be set up to have things kill other things. That's hard. Um, do we know? Is, is justice actually going to happen when it feels like so much injustice happens? Um, yeah, exactly. She's doing something different to draw her attention to the end. It's like the surprise symphony. It's meant to jolt us out of our complacency, both with her poetry and our theology. So it sticks. <laughs> yeah, to reread and rethink, to puzzle about the ending, to leave you questioning, to invoke frustration for shock and surprise. <laughs> no, I want you to come up with an alternate ending. Uh, but yeah, she she does that. Your ear your ear's gonna naturally come up with an alternate ending, and then she's going to punch you with something else. Um, so let's go back to some of our questions. If you came in late, you might have a little trouble with these. But rereading is an effective learning strategy. True or false? We're going to go quicker this time. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three. Two, one. False. Uh, Rereading is not going to make it stick. If it didn't stick the first time, don't just reread it. You got to do something else. Try to summarize it. Try to come up with questions. Making errors when retrieving information is good for learning. True or false? Ten. Nine. Eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. True. I guess you're never gonna forget. I guess because you had all those ends and teaching that is consistent with a student's preferred learning style, like kinesthetic, will improve learning. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six. Five, four, three, two, one. <coughs> False. What's more important is that the teaching style matches the content, not that it matches the learner's preference. Learning is best when it feels easiest. True or false? Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two. One. False. Effortful learning is better learning. You should immediately move on from a subject once it is initially understood, rather than continuing for mastery. You should immediately move on from a subject once it is initially understood, rather than continuing for mastery. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six. Five, four, three, two, one. True. Uh, my analogy was paint. If you're going to put a second coat of paint on, you want the first coat to fully dry. Uh, once you make the neural pathway, you want to leave it 
forget it a little bit, come back and relearn it, and then it's actually going to be much stronger. So um, I told you this was just an excuse for me to talk about poetry, and at least most of you stayed in here, so thank you for that, uh, indulging me. Um, but what was I doing? First, I tried to give you spaced practice, rather than staying on those questions from the beginning for the whole time and just going over. We did them at the beginning, then we had some time between, and then we came back to them. So you want to have some time in between when you're reviewing content. It's, it's inefficient to stay on content once it's grasped. Mass practiced, if you stay on the same thing for a long time, it's bad. Interleaving is just kind of a fancy word, but it's for teaching multiple things at once. So one example that I heard was if you're learning about a country, you don't want to talk about the economy fully, and then once that's fully done, talk about the geography, and then once that's fully done, talk about the natural resources. You want to interleave them and teach the connections between them. So I'm talking about Emily Dickinson's theme, but I'm also talking about the meter and the rhyme scheme and how she breaks the rules. I'm not going to um, just talk about ballad meter and do 10 ballad meter poems and then do 10 short meter poems. I'm going to do a ballad meter, then a short meter, and then a ballad meter, and so teaching them the difference. So uh, an example from the book is actually about teaching different artists. If, if you're thinking about teaching students to recognize Van Gogh, it'd be better to actually teach Van Gogh and Rembrandt and go back and forth and back and forth than just do Van Gogh forever and then do Rembrandt forever. To go back and forth is better. The comparison is really good for your brain. Um, so picking things up and then dropping them repeatedly <coughs> is really good. One topic or aspect at a time is bad. Elaboration, coming up with an analogy, that engages you really deeply. If you have to produce something, if you have to elaborate on something, rather than just passively taking it in. So um, coming up with an analogy, what is this like? Um, that's, that's really deep, sticky learning. Making connections is really good. Generation, to generate or come up with an answer. If, if it's a wrong answer, coming up with an answer, even if it's a wrong answer, is so much better than just sitting and waiting for the right answer. Getting things wrong is, is an essential, good part of learning. So I had you guess at the final line, because wrong answers help right answers stick. Um, I know you all enjoy David Smith. One of the things I remember him talking about in, in teaching uh, German was sometimes using an overhead projector and like concealing something on that or just finding ways to conceal, so to hide things. That's just a really engaging way to teach. You hide something and then have students try to find it. Um, calibration. Um, so pretesting to get confidence closer to accuracy. So bringing the overconfidence down a little bit or increasing the underconfident. Um, so calibration, just trying to get that. Um, 
we need a measuring stick. So the fact that I asked you all those questions in the beginning, that was to get you to think about how maybe a lot of the things that we do in school as teachers are not actually the best things for our students' brains. And then reflection, uh, putting things in your own words. What does Dickinson do at the end of the poem and why? Creation is active, creation is sticky. So if I just told you why Dickinson did that, it wouldn't be as sticky as having you tell me why she did it. Reception is passive, active is deeper engagement. So I have some, uh, some like real life examples for this. Um, maybe you're like me and you have students who've never dialed a friend's phone number before in their lives. And, um, you know, I, I tell them when I was your age or when I was in, in middle school, I had probably, I don't know, 25, 50 phone numbers memorized. And they're like, why would you sit and memorize phone numbers? I said, I didn't. <laughs> I just called people. And I called them, but in between the times that I called them, my brain did a little forgetting, and then I had to relearn it. And that process of forgetting and relearning makes the neural pathway stronger. I didn't try to learn any phone numbers, I just did. Because I had to, to come back to it after some forgetting. Um, interleaving. Uh, there's research on batting practice. If you just practice fastballs, so you have your fastball day, and you practice that all day, and then the next day it's curveball day, you're going to do really good in those practices. But in the games, you're not going to do that well. Because in the games, you don't know what you're getting. And you have to get all of the content at once in an unpredictable manner so that you can find the, the finer differences. Uh, elaborations. Maybe this is a little dark. But, um, but this is what doctors do after after a, you know, during a post-mortem. They look at how did things go and how could things have gone? What would have been a better way? So to, to go back and reassess other ways um, of treatment. Generation. What are you going to do in this situation? You have to come up with an answer. This is why pilots use flight simulators. You have to be put in that position and you have to make the decision. Um, so, you know, using a pretest or a practice test, actually getting kids to answer all of the questions. Calibration, again, practice quizzes for standardized testing. Um, we all know, right, that ACT score says a lot more about your financial status and your ability to pay for coaching than it does uh, for your intelligence. Um, because you practice things, you get better at uh, Reflection, so journaling on things is a very, very uh, sticky way. So even if it's, um, you know, some, some science, just tell me in your own words what was the process that we went through uh, to go through that, what were difficulties, where did you mess up in your experiment. All of that journaling, journaling is very sticky. Um, so anyway, I have this on the Google Doc um, that you'll be that'll be shared with you when I end this Paradox session. Um, but it's just a link to a uh, 
uh, Google Doc that we used for professional development when I did this for a day. Um, and it gives you kind of like little videos and articles to talk about those six different uh, research-based strategies for sticky learning. Um, so it's just more videos to kind of bring this to uh, bring this home a little bit more. Um, so also some research articles. There's kind of some lighter stuff and some denser stuff. Um, but that'll all be shared with you. You should be able to, to copy it from the Google Doc. Um, but anyway, it's the end of the day. Um, ending 14 minutes early, but I will answer any questions if you have questions. Um, the book, again, I can't recommend highly enough. It's called Make It Stick, written by three researchers who are um, looking at neuroscience and learning, and then one professional writer who makes it very, very readable. But if there are any questions... You're the author. Um, I could go back to that. Let me let me go back to the it. first slide on this. Peter Brown yeah, Peter Brown is one of the names. Brown McDaniel. Brown McDaniel. I do see some people leaving. I don't want to shame you, but we are going to close in prayer. the end of the day. But I will answer some some any questions if people have questions. can't recommend the book highly enough. It's, it's really good. Probably one of the best um, books on teaching that I've ever read. And Excellent. Thanks, Phil. Okay, thank Appreciate you. it.